Mark chapter 4, and our text for this morning will be found in verse 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Verse 40, And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do commit our time to you, and we ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and hearts eager and ready to receive your word this morning. Give us a greater view of Christ, and have us walk away changed and transformed by his grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of this sermon is Christ in the Storm. I draw your attention to the title because it is the name of one of the most famous paintings by Rembrandt, based on the story found in Mark chapter 4. Some of you may be familiar with this work of art, and I want to show it to you uh, because some of you have likely seen it before. Uh, But in 1633, at the age of 27, Rembrandt painted this seascape, as it's called, entitled Christ in the Storm, On the Sea of Galilee. And it's hard to see, uh, so I'll just kind of describe it with with this distinct and and sharp contrast of light and shadow. Rembrandt's painting shows a small boat in the midst of a furious storm. The disciples struggle against the wind and the waves, and yet there is Jesus at the center of this boat, calm and undisturbed. And there's something that engages you to this painting. You don't have to be a lover of art to appreciate its beauty. Uh, It's why, for centuries, it's one of the most famous and recognizable paintings Rembrandt has ever done. In fact, when I think of this story in Mark 4, this particular image came to mind because it's become so connected with this account. But I show this painting not necessarily to point out its beauty, because that's obvious. Instead, I want to point out the most unique aspect of this painting is the presence of a 13th disciple in the boat. And art experts say that there is a striking resemblance to Rembrandt himself, (laughs) that he had painted himself in the story of Mark chapter 4. This feature of the painting spoke to how Rembrandt saw this story in Mark's gospel for his own life. And it reminded me that to a certain extent, like him, this is often how we have approached this story. 
where we have painted ourselves in the picture, and at times we have us be the focus of it. If you look and you find Rembrandt here, he's the one with the hand on his hat and grabbing onto the rope in front of the boat. And the only one whose face is toward us. I mean, it could be coincidence that he happens to put himself more centered than Jesus in the picture. We don't know. But it reminds me of something that I've mentioned before. That there's a tendency to come before Scripture in this way and to try to insert ourselves in the text and have it be about us and centering the picture on ourselves initially. Where we begin with the question of what does this text mean for me? We can turn the lights on now and do away with the picture. But I want to tell you that this tendency that we have doesn't serve us well. Because the Bible wasn't written first and foremost with us in mind, but with God in mind. This well-known story is no exception. For many people, they read the story in Mark 4, and the point that's often drawn from it is this, that in the same way that Jesus calms the storms, he calms the storms in your hearts and lives as well. Haven't we heard that before? And while that may be true, that's not what this story is about. See, the portrait that Mark paints for us here in the story is much different. Mark is unmistakably clear what his purpose in writing this gospel is. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 1. And his thesis statement is found in the very beginning of his gospel in Mark 1, verse 1. And this is what he writes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what this book is about. That's what this gospel is about. And that's what this passage is about. It is about Christ and who he is and what he has done. And he is the one that we are to look to first. Mark, like all the other writers in Matthew, Luke, and John, has as his objective to make it clear that Jesus is none other than God, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is man, but he is God as well, for he is the God-man, the one who came into this world, who entered our humanity, who veiled himself in human flesh. He is God incarnate. And that will be demonstrated so plainly in his book and specifically in this passage before us. And here we will see a beautiful portrait of Jesus. And everyone else is in the background. And in this story, we will see Jesus' humanity. And as well, we will see a staggering demonstration of his deity. That is the portrait that Mark paints for us. And it's important that we keep that in mind each time that we come to Mark's gospel. When we come before this passage, 
we look for Jesus first and foremost in this picture. But here's the thing, that as we do, we will then rightly see us in the picture as well. And that is a great blessing that we find in God's word each time that we come before it. And so, turn back to Mark chapter 4. If you're taking notes, I want to give you three headings to walk us through this story. And the first thing that we see in this story is a sudden predicament. Look at verse 35 of Mark 4. And it says this, that on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. It's evening time. And Jesus is at the end of a long day. And I want to talk a little bit about this day. This day began in verse 1 of Mark 4. We glance back there. And Mark tells us that at the beginning of this day, a very large crowd gathered about him, so much so that he got into a boat because the multitudes began crowding him. So our Lord is forced to be on this boat. And so he got into the boat and onto the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, in verse 2, and there he was teaching them many things in parables. And everyone is listening intently while Jesus is teaching in this boat alongside the Sea of Galilee. And then begins this long discourse. The Mark tells us that as his disciples began hearing our Lord teach, they were asking questions about the meaning of these parables that he was teaching in. And so Jesus takes the time to teach his disciples as well. And it says in verse 33, if you scroll down there, that with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And then in verse 34, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. See, this had been a long day of teaching, both publicly to the multitudes and privately to his disciples. And now, after what has been an exhausting day of ministry, evening has come. And Jesus gives instruction in verse 35 this. Let us go across to the other side. And it says, leaving the crowds, they took him with them just as he was, and other boats were with him. Jesus wants to set out to the eastern shore from Capernaum, fittingly into a Gentile region to teach and to do ministry, for he says that is why he came. And so Jesus leaves the crowds with his disciples. Can you imagine that it must have been a serene setting as these boats were moving together across the calm sea of Galilee under the evening skies. And no doubt the disciples with four experienced fishermen, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, saw no reason that evening for concern as they set out, as they had so many times before, anticipating an uneventful crossing on the sea. There would be no advance warning for what was about to happen. In verse 37... And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. 
to this day, there are frequent warnings for those who go out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. For the water is vulnerable to sudden and dangerous storms. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, making it the lowest freshwater lake on earth. And it is surrounded by steep hills and mountains. And so the lake sits like a bowl of water. And because of the climactic and geographical setup, violent winds come across its surface as if they're blown through a funnel. And what happens is when the cold air of the wind and the warm air that naturally arises from the water meet, it causes tumultuous winds. And it comes without warning, turning this tranquil lake in one moment into a roaring and violent storm in the next. And it happens within a matter of seconds. One commentator writes that even with today's modern equipment, some people refuse to sail on the Sea of Galilee for fear of perishing under the wrath of the lake's violent moods. And it would be this violent mood that Jesus and his disciples encountered that evening. A great storm came upon them. A gale of wind, as some of you have in your translations. This was a hurricane that howled and blew across that lake and their boat. And heavy rain began to fall upon them. And waves were rising so high that it began to break into the boat and began filling it. And the disciples couldn't bail out the water fast enough. So that Matthew tells us in his gospel that the boat was covered in waves. And if this wasn't a dire situation enough, Luke tells us that it is nighttime now. So that all of this is happening in the dark. And so naturally, panic begins to set in. Because everyone understood that if the boat capsized, it meant certain death. Remember, these were seasoned fishermen who traversed along these same waters since their youth, who were familiar with such storms on the sea, who lived in and around the waters, but they had never experienced anything like this. And they realized at that moment that they were not in control. And this situation was out of their hands. And for these seamen, this was uncharted waters for them, as it were. And they were scared. It's interesting to note that this sudden predicament came about not by way of their disobedience, but by way of their obedience. These were disciples who had left everything to follow Jesus, who were under his ministry, who believed and loved our Lord. And when our Lord said, let us go to the, to the other side, they obeyed. And yet here in following Jesus, they find themselves on the brink of death tossed up and down by a tempest and in danger of being drowned. And it is a lesson for us that following Christ doesn't exclude us 
from the storms of life. And that can be hard for us to accept. Because we know that in our lives, we can be in certain predicaments because of disobedience. But what we learn here is that it is because of obedience to the word of God that the disciples and we ourselves can find trials meeting us head on. We can be doing the right things, serving the Lord, obedient to his word, and yet difficulty will come as a result. And at times it can come unexpectedly. And we find ourselves asking why. How is this fair? I'm doing everything right, and yet I suffer, and not them. But as believers, as those who are pilgrims passing through this life to the next, we can't assume that everything will be smooth in our journey to heaven. The great J.C. Rowell said this, quote, We must count it no strange thing if we have to endure sicknesses, losses, bereavements, and disappointments just like other men. Free pardon and full forgiveness, grace along the way, and glory at the end. All this our Savior has promised to give, but he has never promised that we shall have no affliction. He loves us too well to promise that. By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections and weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm, end quote. Suffering is a part of life. One author once said that we just need to live long enough and we will suffer. Storms will come. And sometimes they can last for a moment and other times they can last for a lengthy season of our lives. It could be a loss of a job. It could be unemployment. It could be that you're struggling financially. It could be sickness and chronic illness that you're dealing with. Physically, you just feel like your body is wearing down and you're in constant pain. It could be your singleness and you're struggling with loneliness and anxiety for if you will ever meet that person. It could be constant fighting And arguing between husband and wife, there is tension in your marriage, and things at home are trying. It could be that parenting is hard, and your kids are difficult. For some of you that are maybe older, that your children are no longer walking with the Lord, and your concern is for their soul. It could be that maybe you're struggling to even have children. It could be that things are at work are stressful and and there is no joy at work. 
could be that you are here this very moment and you are lost. And you don't know where you're going and what to do. I don't know what's happening in your life right now. You can be in the midst of a storm. God, for his good purposes, in fact, leads his people into storms. He leads his people to difficulties. He leads his people to experiences that bring them to the end of themselves and their sense of control. Why? So that they may in turn turn to him, that he might reveal himself to us in greater ways. And part of the reason for these storms and for this specific storm here in this passage is it is an opportunity for him to show that he is faithful and good, that he is sovereign. And that's exactly what we see secondly in this story. We see a sovereign display. The strong winds blew and the waves broke into the boat and there was chaos all around. And yet all the while, where's Jesus? What is he doing? Mark tells us in verse 38 that he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Jesus is asleep through all of this. In fact, Luke tells us in his account that as the boat began to sail, Jesus fell asleep immediately. And so an interpretive issue is, why is Jesus sleeping? Well, Jesus is sleeping because, get this, he's tired. No need to over-spiritualize our reason here, as so many have done. Okay, Our Lord is just worn out. And it's been an incredibly long day of ministry. And yet here we are given this beautiful picture by Mark of the truly human Jesus who is exhausted, who is weary, who needs rest. Jesus, the very one who created the water. He's the very one who created the sky. He created the wood the boat was made of. He even created sleep. And now he employs these things for his own benefit. And he goes to sleep in the boat. Because in his incarnation, he subjects himself to the limitations of man. And so he slumbers. And it's the kind of sleep that he has here where it's a deep sleep. And Jesus is just knocked out kind of sleep. Do, do some of you maybe sleep like that? right? Or, or have, have you been that tired that you've slept through anything? I remember that on one of my earlier missions trips to South America, uh, it was a couple of long weeks there teaching and doing outreaches. And we had VBS and we served on worship and we primarily did a lot of construction work, and it was just nonstop ministry, and I even got sick there during that time. And I remember being so tired at the end of this trip that when I got on a plane in Ecuador, someone had to wake me up when we landed in Florida, and I didn't remember anything in between. And then we caught a connecting flight back to Sacramento, and I didn't wake up until we landed there, and someone told me, hey, we're home. Okay, I literally didn't eat for that entire day and night because I was out. 
some of us have experienced that in some ways, that we would identify this as a very human response to being exhausted. And that's exactly what our Lord experienced. He's so tired that he sleeps through the howling storms and waters are smashing upon the boat and he sleeps through the cries of his disciples. It was in that stern and on that pillow where Jesus slept and that there was this incredible calm amidst the eye of the storm. There was great calm for our Lord, but no such calm for anyone else. Because in verse 38, it tells us, and they woke him to this danger. Here it's hard for this simple statement to convey the tone and the weightiness of the situation. Too often we read this disengaged from the urgency here. I don't imagine that the disciples woke Jesus up casually. It probably wasn't something like, uh, excuse me, excuse me, Jesus, uh, sorry to trouble you during your slumber, but uh, some of the others are rather frightened, and uh, we thought maybe you could do something about it. Uh, no pressure, just whenever you get around to it, okay? No, it, no it, was, it was now. Jesus, please help us. Lord, we are dying. It was that kind of storm. Not a storybook storm. This was real flesh and blood. This storm shook them to the core and it caused them to cry out to the only one they knew who could save them. And as again, as seasoned fishermen, they would have had to have been so overwhelmed to panic like this. And then notice what they asked. It was the worst question that they could have asked. Verse 28, teacher, don't you care if we drown? I'll ask Jesus something else. But don't ask him this. Don't you care? Jesus must have looked them in their eyes and thought, I'm in this boat because I care. I am in this world because I care. I will go to the cross to die for your sin because I care. Do I care? I care deeply for you. What a question. But before we're quick to judge the disciples, let's be honest. We know this question. That amidst the circumstances of life, as the storms come and the waves break and we are overwhelmed, helpless to do anything, and we are hurting, this is often our question, Lord, don't you care? Do you love me? Where are you? In the midst of trials, we know we don't immediately go to the Psalms or to the Word we don't have this unwavering kind of trust in God. We are much like the disciples who doubt his care for them. And see, what happened and what often happens is that the storms of life, the immediacy of their circumstances so filled their minds, 
that it came between them and the assurance of Jesus' care for them. This storm and the reality of it and the challenges that it represents, it came between them and the assurance of Jesus' love. But it also caused them to forget the word of the Lord. Do you remember what Jesus had just said in verse 35? He says this, let us go to the other side. That was his word. He says, we're going to the other side. This will happen. It is a certainty that as the Lord intends, it will come to fruition. It was only a moment ago that Jesus says, we will be on the other side. And now in the middle of this storm that these disciples find themselves in, they doubt not only his love, they doubt his word to them. And again, isn't this what happens to us? The Lord tells us that he is with us and he will never forsake us. That God is our refuge and strength, our help in trouble, then no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That he works together all things for good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That his grace is sufficient for you, for his power is made perfect in our weakness. We forget. And in our moment of need, we need to turn to his word, cling to it, that we might lay hold of his promises when we are tempted to give up and when we are tempted to ask with the disciples, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? Sinclair Ferguson writes that this was the cruelest question that they could have asked. For again, the very reason that he is with them is because he cares deeply for sinners. It was the cruelest question they could have asked. But note this, that while the question was cruel, Jesus rebukes the storm before correcting the disciples. Don't miss that. Behold, such grace to his disciples and to us when we waver in our faith. We go back to our story and our Lord, he wakes up and he does something amazing here. Look at verse 39. It says that he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Notice this. Jesus doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't stand back and gets ready. He isn't waving his hands. Our Lord, he doesn't get a wand. He gives no incantations here and, and says, in the name of seas. No, he stands up to the storm, this hurricane, and he rebukes it. He says, be quiet and be still. That's it. That's how you talk to a child. Sit down and stay there. And he does this to the storm, treating it like an unruly child. 
And the amazing thing is it complies. In an instant, Mark tells us in verse 39, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. In some of your translations in the Nazbe, and the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. That sounds redundant until you realize that it's first describing the wind and then about the water. It says completely calm, which could literally be translated dead calm. You ever seen water that is smooth as glass? No waves at all, and you can see your reflection of your face in it? See, when the winds stopped after Jesus' rebuke, that could have just been coincidence. But if you've ever gone on an ocean cruise or lived out on shore at sea for a while, you know that even when the winds stop and the storm ends, the waves will continue to pound for hours on end afterward. But here, when Jesus said, Peace, be still, not only did the winds die down, but the water went instantly dead. Calm. When the words were spoken, be quiet and be still. The wind and the sea recognized that voice. It was the voice of their creator. They knew that it was the one who said, let there be, and there was. And from this storm and chaos came immediate calm and peace and echoes of Genesis 1. Jesus was displaying his lordship and sovereignty over the elements. This miracle was a demonstration of power, power that belonged alone to God. And the Jews, they knew this. In ancient times, the the sea was uncontrollable except by any power but God. In those cultures and legends, the sea was a symbol of unstoppable destruction. The ocean was was full of fury. It was ungovernable. It was relentless. It was an unstoppable force. And yet here Jesus does something that only God could do. And the psalmist speaks of the greatness of God over all things. And, and it says in Psalm 33, 7, that he is the one who makes the waters of the sea as a heap. And he puts the deep in storehouses. For these disciples, and especially for the readers of Mark's gospel, it should have actually brought to mind Psalm 107. And it's interesting that this, this account is a striking parallel to what is written in Psalm 107, almost a fulfillment of what happens to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. We don't necessarily have time to turn there, but let me at least explain to you what Psalm 107 is about. In this psalm, it speaks of God using very familiar language here that we find in Mark 4. It speaks of God stirring up the tempest at sea that causes the sailors to melt in fear. And they cry to the Lord in their distress, And then it says in verse 29 of Psalm 107 that he made the storm to be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. 
The language and pattern of this psalm are unmistakably reflected in this story. This was an example of how the Old Testament depicted God alone as possessing the power to quell storms such as this. And here in Mark's account, this ability to command the wind and the waves was a demonstration of our Lord's deity. Jesus Christ is this God spoken of here in Psalm 107. He is showing that he is the Lord, that he stirs the tempest, and yet he also calms the storm. He is making a statement that he is the Lord of the sea. And he has claim and rule and authority over it and this world, for he created it. And it is why the storm listened. Because it was their master who spoke. Do you understand? This is why we can't relegate this story to only be about Jesus calming the storms in your life. Because we will sell this story and our Lord short. It isn't about us. It is first about Jesus, who is Lord over the storm, ruler of nature, the God of over creation, the God of you and me. Third and lastly, we see a surprise reaction in this story. So here are the disciples in danger of being swept away by wind and sea. And in their greatest hour of need, Jesus comes. And he calms the storm and he saves the disciples from what was certain death. It's like Jesus has come and he has won a victory for them. And you would think that what would follow are tears. Right? And everyone is raising their swords, or, or in this case, their oars. Okay, And they're elated. And it would make sense for this to happen because the hero has come. The forces have been defeated and their lives have been saved. And so that naturally would have been excitement that would have been stirred up. And yet, that is not how the disciples react. Jesus calms the storm. And rather than celebrating and giving high fives and being excited, they're terrified. Look at verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. After Jesus calms the storm, we in fact learn that their fear increased. They were actually filled with more fear after the storm than during the storm. Because again, in verse 41, they were filled with great fear. They went from fear to great fear. They were terrified. And it doesn't make sense. You would think after all they experienced and all that they saw, they would be elated. The reason why they responded this way is because they knew that there in their midst was the most powerful being in the world. And they were horrified. At that thought. This is what R.C. Sproul says. He says, What is significant about this scriptural story is that the disciples' fear increased 
after the threat of the storm was removed. The storm had made them afraid, but Jesus' action to still the tempest made them more afraid. In the power of Christ, they met something more frightening than they had even met in nature. They were in the presence of the holy. It is one thing to fall victim to the flood or to fall prey to cancer. It is another thing to fall into the hands of the living God. End quote. The presence of the supernatural in this instance is more frightening to humanity than the most destructive of natural disasters. These disciples were better able to handle the possibility of their own death than the possibility of the presence of God among them. In that moment, God's nearness in Jesus is not something reassuring, but something profoundly unsettling and even terrifying. And this is, in fact, this has been the usual, the usual reaction that we find in Scripture. That when people come before the holiness of God, they are in fear. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I saw a vision of the Lord, and I fell like a dead man. See, after this miracle, the disciples knew they were in the presence of the divine, and it terrified them. And amidst what they saw, they said to one another, this question in verse 41. Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And I want to tell you that that is the question that our Lord wanted to lead these disciples to ask. It is the most important question that could be asked for these disciples and for everyone else in this world. Because how you answer who Jesus is, is the difference between heaven and hell. There are eternal implications at stake with this question. There is no greater question to be asked. Who then is this? So much so that Mark writes this gospel to lead us to the answer. And as we saw and as we read this morning, the answer to this question of who then is this is that he is the Christ, the Son of God. The calming of the sea was to show that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And Mark will show us that this account wasn't just a demonstration of power, but it was a precursor to something greater that Jesus will do. See, this storm points to another storm, a future storm, and a greater storm that Jesus will encounter. In fact, it is why he came into this world. Our Lord came to confront the storm of God's righteous wrath against sin. On our behalf. Jesus came to endure and to absorb the storm on that cross. And he does so as our substitute. That is the storm that he ultimately came for. 
And Jesus would go to the cross and he would receive the storm of eternal justice for our sin. He does this not because we are deserving, that we have merited it, but that he might show how much he loves sinners. And he dies our death. And on the third day, he would demonstrate his great power once again when he rose from the grave and he defeats death and sin. And he is gracious and he is kind to offer eternal life freely, to offer forgiveness of sin to any who would repent and trust in him. See, I want to tell you that this is meant to be a great encouragement to those of us who read. I don't want you to misunderstand. There is application for us here in this story. But it's when we focus on our Lord and the cross and the extent of our Lord's sacrifice, it assures us of his love and care for us, even amidst life's storms. In fact, if you remember, this gospel was written during the time and to those who were being persecuted by Rome for their faith. And this story would have had great meaning to them. I don't know what storms you're going through and what you're struggling with. I don't know what hurts that you have, what is heavy on your heart. But there is assurance found in his word that he loves you, that our Lord is at work. I leave you with a quote from Tim Keller. This is what he says. You can listen. He says, If the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, you will never say, God, don't you care? And if you know that he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think that he would abandon you in the much smaller storms that you're experiencing right now? And someday, of course, he will return and still all storms for eternity. If you let that penetrate to the very center of your being, you will know he loves you. You will know he cares. This is the picture that Mark paints for us in this book, in this story. It is about Jesus. And when we look upon him, we are to be left in both fear and wonder at our God. See, this book and and this story has been about answering this question, who then is this? Mark tells us, He is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the one whom we are to trust and to follow, even through life's greatest storms, for he will see us through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for how you have given us a glimpse of our Savior and his power and his love for us. We pray that this account strengthens those who are maybe struggling 
and going through storms and trials in their lives right now, would they be assured that you care for them and they remember the cross of Christ and all the promises that overflow from it, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Thank you, Lord, for your promises. And may we bind your word to our heart and grow in greater trust in you, love you more, and to be more like our Savior. Lord, we pray these things in his name. Amen.